I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. I'm happy to be here now with Dr. Christine Hahn, who is an associate professor at Johns Hopkins Sidney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center in Baltimore, a thoracic oncologist with, with a particular focus in small cell lung cancer. Good morning, great to be here, Jack. And also Dr. Stephen Liu, who is an associate professor of medicine at the Lombardi Cancer Center in Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C., so neighbors. Good morning, thanks. Excellent. So uh, you both have uh, been instrumental in following and uh, and informing the evolution of small cell lung cancer, a field that for the last 10 to 15 years at least has been without uh, many changes to say the least. And in fact, I think there's been a lot of nihilism if there's ever a place in lung cancer or oncology that has felt like we're banging our heads against a wall without making much progress, small cell's been one of them. But that arguably changed uh, last year with the uh, presentation by you, Dr. Liu, and the uh, publication in the New England Journal by Drs. Horn and colleagues, of which you were uh, one of those authors, of course, of the Empower 133 trial, a randomized phase three study of carboetoposide with or without atezolizumab as first-line treatment for extensive stage small cell lung cancer. And uh, that was a positive trial, statistically significant improvement in overall survival, uh, and, but with a median improvement, uh, an improvement in median overall survival of two months. And I think that some people came away from that somewhat critical, disappointed that that wasn't necessarily enough. So I'm interested in your take, and perhaps Dr. Han, first you can start with your thoughts on whether that moves the needle enough and whether you think this is a clear standard of care. So I think that this was a really important study. I think for many of us, it was an incredibly exciting result uh, to know that there was now some uh, some benefit in the frontline setting for patients with small cell lung cancer. The two-month benefit in overall survival was modest. I think that it is um, it still puts it as a standard of care for folks in the U.S. Um, as um, the best possible option for our patients up front, and that it was well tolerated was really important. So I would say that it is a new standard of care in the U.S. Um, I think that we can probably add to that, and I think there are many different ways to, uh, to, to combine strategies to perhaps uh, move the overall survival and progression-free survival further. Stephen, I'm, of course you presented it, so I'm sure you, uh, you know, have favorable things to say, but you've also heard some of the, the challenges to it. What's your take on where this leaves the field? I, I get it. But I look at it sort of through two different prisms. One is we had high expectations for combination therapy based on our experience and success in non-small cell lung cancer, which is a completely different disease. And the magnitude of benefits seen in those diseases uh, somewhat dwarfs what we saw in small cell lung cancer. And so I understand that people had hoped for more, um, but certainly this is, this is better than what we had. I think a better way to look at the results, though, is not in the improvement in the median, but really the hazard ratio for death. Mm -hmm. And while the improvement in the median was only two months, from 10.3 to 12.3, the hazard ratio for death was 0.70, or a 30% reduction in the risk of death over uh, every point in that study. And that hazard ratio 0.70 
meets most of our criteria for a meaningful improvement. If we look at the use of immunotherapy following chemoradiation, your hazard ratio there was 0.68, very similar, 0.70. We don't question the use of IO after immunotherapy. I don't think we should question the use of IO in frontline chemo for small cell either. So that is impressive, and, and I agree that if you're helping less than half the patients, the median can change relatively little, even if it's a dramatic impact on some patients. You know, we are probably having uh, a significant benefit for a very limited population and not much benefit for a lot of others. So, you know, this may be something like trying to find the, you know, the driver mutation that you know, was led to modestly favorable results with erlotinib in a, in a broad population that wasn't really selected. Uh, but PDL1 is not commonly expressed, certainly not to high levels, in small cell lung cancer. Uh, do you foresee that in the next few years we can identify a subgroup of patients who are the most likely to benefit and really focus our efforts with immunotherapy on them and, and not pursue it more broadly? I think we will need to. We need a large-scale investment in, in biomarkers and in predictive biomarkers to identify those patients who do benefit. Because you're right, it's not most people. It's a smaller benefit. And, and if we identify the population that does benefit, we can identify the population that doesn't benefit and really try to understand why. So certainly that's where we want to get to, it's just much more challenging in small cell. This is a disease that moves very quickly. It's a disease that often won't afford us the chance to go back and re-biopsy and acquire more tissue and submit that tissue to any type of uh, in-depth testing to help select treatment. It's a disease that moves forward quickly. So uh, there are a lot of practical barriers to developing biomarkers in the frontline small cell space. And if you had a study where you did a biopsy, looked for a biomarker, used that biomarker to select a therapy, you're immediately selecting for a, for a population that can afford to wait. And that population may be biologically different from the patient that's coming in through our clinic or through the emergency room in extremis who needs therapy now. And that is most of, of the presentation that we see. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little more optimistic. I think, that, I think that a couple things will happen. One is there are additional phase three studies that will read out in the next couple of years that are looking at immunotherapy combinations in the frontline setting. Um, I think that the combined data from Keynote 604 and the Caspian, stu Caspian study may give us more information. I also think that with increased use of a TZO in the frontline setting, there are a number of institutions and research groups that are interested in following these patients prospectively while they go on therapy. And hopefully some of that ancillary data will feed into understanding better biologically who's going to benefit the most. There's, there's other alternatives in small cells, some that have had trials completed and we've at least heard a little bit in press releases others that are in development. You know, one disappointing one is Checkmate uh, 331 with uh, nivolumab in the second line setting, not beating Topotecan. We haven't seen the data, but we've just heard a press release that, uh, seen the press release that that failed. But that's an agent that there's been a relatively significant amount of interest and enthusiasm around. It's in the NCCN guidelines, but it failed to beat a reviled standard that people have very little respect for or use for. Um, uh, and so uh, can you speak uh, to what you uh, would say is a, a potential explanation for that? Is it timing? Is it that there's a significant difference between or among these uh, checkmate inhibitor, uh, checkpoint inhibitors? 
Um, I don't know that there's a specific difference between the different PD-1 inhibitors. You know, I think that um, based on the Checkmate 32 data, where nivolumab result, treatment with nivolumab resulted in an 11% response rate, um, nivolumab was still approved by the FDA in the third line or after two prior treatments um, because of the duration of response. 11% long duration of response in a, in a, with an agent that causes few toxicities is still a promising subgroup of patients. But I think if we take all comers in the relapse setting and, uh, and we start off with a relatively low single agent response rate, then we may not see that kind of benefit in the larger group. I think it's going to come down to biomarkers again and identifying the population. So I guess one of the points is it's not that it's that necessarily hard to reconcile because the 11% response rate that you know that was previously seen is totally compatible with the lack of a positive trial. Actually, yes, you know, in, in a minority. broad population, yeah. The vast minority response. So, uh, Steve, I was surprised. I really thought it was going to be positive, and I think that I thought Topotecan was a low bar to clear, and I was disappointed and, and frankly surprised by the results. And there are a lot of explanations, and it might just be that the population is too small, it was underpowered to detect that. But another explanation is that really it is a, a different patient population. If we look at the survival benefit from Empower 133, there are two reasons why we saw a positive result there, but a negative result in the second line space. And one is a potential true synergy between chemotherapy and immunotherapy, and I think that is possible, though it's far from having been proven. But another explanation is that the population you treated in Power 133 was a population that included everyone at the time of diagnosis. And in the second line space, you are including patients who have received frontline therapy, progressed on treatment, survived, and were well enough to enroll in another trial. The people that you're losing from diagnosis to relapse, the people that you're losing along the way from step one and step two, those patients may be the very ones that derive the benefit from atezolizumab or from immunotherapy. And so immunotherapy may be taking that population of patients that don't do well with chemotherapy and rescuing them. Yeah, I mean, you, we just can't know. It, it could be those patients. You might hypothesize that you need to not be in a free fall and be the ones who are well enough to enroll on the second line trial. And I just don't know if you could prospectively say Admittedly, these are two different populations, some who are getting a, a drop in their performance status every week or two, and the others who are able to do hold on for two, three weeks in between and pursue a trial. Well, if it was that, if it was just people that you could stabilize well enough to make sure they got therapy, then we would have expected to see better results with maintenance treatment. Yeah, okay. So, so where do you see, is there, do you have a clear sense that the future of immunotherapy is definitely going to be up front uh, for broadly? Or, you know, there are maintenance trials ongoing. There are uh, second line. Uh, this isn't the last, you know, Checkmate 331 isn't the last trial. So um, I mean, is all of this obviated or do you foresee it as for a selected population, it's going to be upfront, and for others, it may be maintenance, and for a different population, it may be uh, second line or later. I think there's going to be a population upfront that we can identify that needs the triplet regimen, which is a topicide platinum with a single immunotherapy or um, immune checkpoint inhibitor, um, and then there are going to be other groups that will require those three drugs in addition to another agent. Sounds like a lot, maybe in the maintenance setting. Um, and then there are, uh, and I hope we can identify those patients who we really should not be giving upfront immunotherapy to. 
um, that would always be a patient that would do better with either chemotherapy or targeted therapy. Um, you know, I'll have to say that there is, um, in general, increasing interest in small cell lung cancer. I think when I was a fellow, the generation that had been uh, very frustrated with the, the lack of progress in small cell was was present, but I think a new generation of people had, had emerged. And in the last five to 10 years, there's been increasing NCI funding to really characterize small cell lung cancer. And I think that that has created sort of a groundswell of people that are not only interested in developing new therapies, but really driving down to the biology of what makes small cells so resilient and resistant um, and um, and uh, such a have such a high case fatality rate. I think that those groups are really going to converge to add bi uh, really important biological data. Um, and then as uh, newer therapies are developing, I think that we'll be able to find very unique combinations that will be specific to small cell. I think we aim for that level of sophistication and hopefully we get there soon. It, based on what we know now, which isn't a lot, maintenance approaches have been very disappointing. Shureshka Gill's phase two of pembrolizumab with a PFS of only 1.4 months, the press release from Checkmate 451, where patients who had stable disease or response after frontline chemotherapy randomized to nevoipi, to nevo or to placebo, we didn't see an improvement in survival when it compared nevoipi to placebo. Now, we need to see those data to better understand it, but if it was just ensuring patients received immunotherapy, if, if that was enough, then we would have expected to see some signal in maintenance. Because we didn't, we don't fully understand why. I think the only way to ensure that a patient has the opportunity to get that survival benefit is to use it as triplet therapy in the frontline setting. But yes, we do need to get better at delivering the therapy to patients in whom it's, it's gonna benefit them and when. So we are all converging on the idea that Empower 133 with carboatopicide and atezolizumab is a new standard of care, uh, regardless of whether it was spectacularly better or meaningfully better. It's enough. Where does that leave us now with second-line therapy, and uh, you know, what are you hopeful for, if anything, in the uh, you know as as what's coming after that? Other agents, strategies. Stephen, if I could start with you. Right now, our standard second-line therapy, based on what we know from from Checkmate three three one, would still be topotecan, would still be an agent that hasn't been unseated, that provides some modest benefit, though as we all know, and not a well-tolerated agent and, and modest outcomes to, to be sure. But cytotoxic chemotherapy would remain our, our standard second-line treatment. As always, our preferred option is going to be a, a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. We've seen some promising agents in development and looking at different ways to attack small cell lung cancer. Unlike non-small cell lung cancer, we haven't found those driving mutations, those populations that lend themselves well you know, with spectacular responses to specific targeted therapies. But there are some uh, promising avenues of research that, that I think stand a chance to move the needle. Well, I would say you know, Rho-V-T looms large as something that there was a lot of hope for, there was a lot of attention over, and um, it was a big disappointment at the end of the day. I mean, maybe it's not cold and dead, but it's it's uh, dead, or it's it's at least warm and dead. I think it's it's not uh, it's it's been uh, it's moribund at least. And so, uh, you know, is there still a potential strategy there? Are you intrigued by lurbanectidin or anything else out there, Christine? Yeah, so I'll address the Rovati uh, question first. Um, yes, Rovati 
uh, tremendous excitement after the phase one data was released. There was really high clinical benefit rate and responses in uh, patients who had high DLL3 expression. And the subsequent trials, whether in a third line or in uh, maintenance um, or second line uh, against Topotecan, have been disappointing. Actually, I should take that back. Maintenance hasn't been reported out. Maru is still, we're still waiting on that. Uh, but I, I think that uh, the group has sort of wisely stepped back from pushing too hard on Rovati as a single agent. What I think Rovati actually gave us was a really, I think, important target, which is DLL3. Highly expressed in small cell lung cancer, not expressed in normal tissues. There are probably other better ways to try to target DLL3. Um, as we even heard at this conference, you know, antibody drug conjugates by and large, have been a really difficult avenue to pursue. There's been a vanishingly small number that have been approved or made headway. It doesn't mean the target's not right. It just means that the way we're trying to then uh, use therapies in conjunction with the target uh, needs to be refined. Your thoughts? I think that that is what we take away from Rova-T, that the drug wasn't right. And uh, a large problem with that program really was the toxicity that the drug afforded. Um, the target itself, though, is very promising. What you want from a therapeutic target is something that is disproportionately present on the cancer cells but not on normal cells. And I think DLL3 still holds that value. And so looking at different ways to exploit that uniqueness of DLL3 as a target I think is still very viable. And looking at antibody drug conjugates, looking at CAR-T targeting DLL3 I think still holds a lot of promise. So I wouldn't close the book on DLL3. I think Rova-T opened our eyes to that mm -hmm. as a possibility but it needs to be refined and, and improved. Is lurbinectidin something out there that could find yes. its way into practice or any other agents for small cell that you that we're not thinking of? Well, to me, the front runner right now is lurbinectidin as a single agent. Um, I, there's been really promising data coming out of combination with um, adriamycin, though the toxicity is rather high. But as a single agent, response rates that have been reported have been impressive in small cell lung cancer. Um, I have to admit, I haven't used the agent myself, mm -hmm. uh, but I've been very excited to see how this develops. I think that we'll get news in the near future. Um, and, you know, there's a little bit of hesitation because it is, again, another chemotherapy. So we know that, you know, it's likely that the responses um, will be there, but that, um, that the durability may not be what we're hoping for or that we're, we're getting used to seeing in other cancer types with immunotherapy. Uh, but I think that it's, it's a really important first step. Um, and then uh, maybe maybe combinatorial strategies, even with urbanectidin, might be something in the future. I think that we're trying to achieve a couple different things. With some of these agents, they'll have direct cytotoxic effects, and you'll see some benefit. We definitely need those types of studies, those types of drugs. But where I think more excitement lies is in you know, invigorating or forcing an immune response. And so for patients who do progress after initial pdl one therapy, Using these other agents as immunomodulators, I think, holds more promise. If we look at CHECK1 inhibitors, we look at PARP inhibitors, they've shown some activity. There's been some interest there. But in combination with immunotherapy, I think that their role as an immunomodulator, forcing T-cell infiltration, inducing an immune response, I think that holds much more promise. And really what we want to achieve here is what we're doing in non-small cells. For some patients, we're getting long-term durable, meaningful responses. And we want to achieve that in small cell. I don't think it's out of the question. I think it's going to be much more challenging. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think we're entering into at least a, a landscape where the standard of care of Topotecan is not a high bar beloved uh, agent. I mean, that there will be a great eagerness to, to have something new, uh, especially in, in, in the second line and later setting. So 
I think we've, we've bitten into this apple and developing a new alkylating agent that is gonna increase your PFS incrementally, that is gonna buy you a few weeks is not something that excites us anymore. And what we want is a tail to the curve. What we want is impressive, durable benefit for some patients, work on identifying who those patients are and then work on all the other patients using a different strategy. That's really where our field is and gone are the days of large powered studies to detect two or three week differences. Right. We need something more. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're used to seeing now hazard ratios of 0.5 to 0.7 and major separations of the curve. And kind of once you've seen Paris, it's hard to go back to the farm. Yeah, I get you. So thanks so much for joining me today for this. Great. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more lung cancer considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.